Hello again. Welcome to our twice weekly broadcast of Apologetics.Watch, a show where we uh, dig into subject, important subjects in biblical theology, Christian apologetics, and uh, uh, scriptural interpretation. So today we're going to be continuing our discussion of Jehovah's Witnesses that we began earlier this week, covering, covering some of their basic beliefs and most importantly, how we as Christians can reach them with the true God and the true gospel. And so last time we looked uh, at a a sort of way into the gospel by discussing the issue of God and human suffering. Um, and so it's one that I found really helpful in generating gospel conversations and have had uh, a lot of really good conversations. I've also had a lot where people were really offended uh, because the idea that God would have anything to do with human suffering would have a plan in that is, is you have to understand very distasteful to a Jehovah's Witness. But I've had a lot of really good, really fruitful conversations out of that. But for some of you guys, you would rather a more traditional direct approach, approach and you are very appropriately, very understandably excited to run straight to the issue of the deity of Christ. One of the central divides between our teaching and theirs, who is Jesus? And you want to proclaim the majesty of your Lord. And you know what? That's awesome. And so today, that's what I want to talk about is how do we broach that subject? And it is uh, complicated by the fact that the Jehovah's Witnesses produce their own version um, that they would prefer me to call a translation, but it's it's not really that, but uh, their own version of the Bible. And what you call it? Uh, a perversion, maybe? Uh, it, it, the thing about it is when you're just reading reading through it, you'll find that it is in many places so grammatically awkward to be almost unreadable. So even on neutral passages that we both agree on what it's saying, it is it, it's it's scarcely bringing the meaning into English. It's so poorly worded. Um, but the most important issue is that when it comes to key texts, especially on the deity of Christ, they alter the wording. Um, so as to hide, minimize, or entirely remove that truth from those passages. So you, uh, you go to a place like Colossians 1.16 that says of Christ, all things were created um, by him, whether visible or invisible principalities, powers, uh, that all things were created by him, for him, uh, through him, and they will add one little word in there. And in their old versions, it was in brackets. They at least admitted they were adding it. But uh, in their most recent uh, edition of their, their version of the Bible, they take the brackets out. And so now their version of the verse says all other things were created by him. Thus, putting Jesus in the category of creation, where Paul, when he wrote Colossians, never intended to place Jesus. And so there are a lot of passages you would traditionally turn to to discuss the deity of Christ that you'll end up in a side debate with Jehovah's Witnesses because their Bible has altered the wording of the verse. And now you're debating how the verse should be translated when they don't they don't read Greek. And most of you watching this don't either. 
And so debating the translation of a verse ends up being a, a counterproductive way to spend your time most of the time. There can be exceptions to that, but most of the time. And so the key is to find passages that you can turn to that even in their translation, you can still get the point across and show them. Not because we have to do that. The Word of God is clear from beginning to end, no matter how they try to alter it. But our desire is to reach them. And so I think it is very helpful to find strategies in which their uh, perversion of the text won't disrupt the conversation. And in fact, very interestingly, uh, early on in, in the last episode, I mentioned the fact that uh, as a teenager my and, uh, and then a young college student, my earliest foray into Christian apologetics as a brand new believer, what led me into this field was conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, conversations with particular Jehovah's Witnesses who came back to my house week after week. And one of the subjects that we came to again and again and again was this topic of the deity of Christ. And as we continued to discuss it, what was interesting, and I didn't notice it at first, but that each week a, a pair of Jehovah's Witnesses would come and then the more vocal of the two, a few weeks later would end up dropping off their original partner and bringing back someone more vocal than themselves. Until finally, as a know-nothing brand new high school kid Christian, I was sitting in my living room with the elders of their congregation having a conversation about the deity of Christ. And in that context, um, the passage that I went to uh, was Isaiah 9.6 where I read, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this passage, uh, even, the, even the Jehovah's Witnesses I talked to agree, this is a messianic prophecy. The son, the, the child to be born, the son to be given, who will have the weight of the government on his shoulders, that this is Jesus who comes to bring the kingdom of God. And even in their translation, he's called mighty God. And I expected this to be startling to them. And it wasn't. And they're like, well, yeah, he is a mighty God, but he's not almighty God. And this is that that's the distinction that they made. And they said, He's a mighty God, but he's not almighty God. So they, they viewed God here as lowercase g, a lesser title. Um, and yeah. So I've got a question. Doesn't this make them polytheists? How can they affirm the multiplicity of gods and yet still hold to their monotheism? It's a fantastic. And they view lowercase g God in this sort of context. And as we're later going to discuss, they're famous for the fact that they changed John 1, 1 to be uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was a God, a lowercase g God. And they view God in this sense to simply mean a powerful one, a, a, a high and lofty person or being, but not almighty eternal God. So they're not referring here to an ontological God of which they believe there is only one, or in other words, someone who in their very being is by nature God above creation, but rather a authoritative 
and, uh, and, and powerful person who can in some sense be called a god. And they would, uh, yeah, yeah Aaron? So they would still say, though, wouldn't they, that he is the agent of creation. He's the one who created uh, Hebrews 1, where it says um, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I assume that they think that's referring to Jesus. So there is, they're attributing things that you can only attribute to God to someone that they think is less than ontologically God. And so the way that they would deal with that, the way that they would argue that is to say that uh, Jesus, they, they would compare Jesus is the laborer and God is the architect. God is the designer. God's the mind behind all those things. And God's even the one who gives Jesus any power that he has to do any of those things. And so I've had a Jehovah's Witness tell me on this, that even though there's passages that talk about things being created through Jesus, that they really only believe in one creator, Jehovah. They wouldn't call Jesus a creator. He is a workman in Jehovah's work of creation. He's Jehovah's laborer, his, 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 uh, his honored servant in carrying out something that's only being done by Jehovah's power and according to Jehovah's will. Um, and so that's the way they would try to draw that line. And so for those who may not have seen the last episode and don't know, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a pre-existent spiritual being. His life didn't begin in Bethlehem. They believe that he is a heavenly being, but they believe he's a created being, an archangel. In fact, they would say the only archangel, uh, that there's only one archangel, and that's the archangel Michael, and they believe Michael is the pre-incarnate name of Jesus. And then Jesus was his earthly name, and then he's resurrected as an angel again, and now he goes by both Jesus and Michael, depending on the passage. Um, and so this is, they, they were, I turned to Isaiah 9, 6 and shared this with them. Jesus called mighty God. And they're like, they were very comfortable with it because they felt as long as he's not called almighty God, mighty God is a lesser title. Mighty God isn't a divine title. And that was the end of that first conversation. Mighty God's a lesser title? To them. Yes. But don't worry. We're, no, we're, we'll, we'll get there. Don't, don't worry, Aaron. We'll get there. You see... I, again, I, I knew very little then, so I'm like, okay, what do I do with this? Um, I don't know any Hebrew. I can't go look up these things. And so I went and I started reading, and I did what I should have done right to begin with. I read the next chapter where we see... The passage goes on to prophesy in that day, uh, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, that's Jehovah by name, the Holy One of Israel in truth, a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Isaiah 10, 20 through 21, we haven't left the context and here, the title Mighty God, the Mighty God, is clearly identified as Jehovah. Isaiah is using Mighty God, Hebrew El Gabor here. It's the exact Hebrew words in, in Isaiah 9, 6 and in here. Um, it's not like these are two different books that are using it in different ways. The Mighty God for Isaiah is Jehovah. <laughs> and so when the Jehovah's Witness elders came back the next week, they, I showed them this. And they were, uh, they 
pulled out one, they kind of scratched their heads a little, and then they pulled a book out of their, their um, briefcase they were carrying with them. They flipped open the book, flipped to find a, a little commentary of theirs on that passage, and then they read that, you know, Jesus is identified as mighty God in Isaiah 9, 6, and that, that's, and that uh, even though Isaiah 10 identifies that title as a title for Jehovah, it doesn't mean that Jesus is Jehovah. And then they close their book as if that just said something. I'm like, you're just asserting it. You're not actually proving it. But there's even more. You go on to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32, 17, 9, ah, Lord God. And here God is in all capitals because uh, this is actually ah, Adonai, Lord, and then Jehovah. But the translator here, didn't want to put ah, Lord, Lord. So they put ah, Lord God, but it's ah, Lord Yahweh, Lord Jehovah. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but repay the guilt of fathers on their children. After them, uh, oh, great and mighty God whose name is the Lord Jehovah of hosts. Who is the mighty God? His name is Jehovah, the Lord of hosts. Well, that's Jehovah of hosts, Jehovah of armies, as the New World Translation would say. Uh, and so we have, we have the repeated identification. No other being or person anywhere in the Old Testament is ever called El Gabor, ever called the mighty God. Jehovah is the mighty God, and Jesus is identified as the mighty God. And it was after this conversation that they dusted their feet off, and Jehovah's Witness did, did not come back to that house, even after I moved out of it, and my parents were still living there, would not return to that house for over 10 years after that. Um, so you can show them these things. That doesn't mean they'll, they'll believe them. But there is no answer for it. This is what the scripture teaches of who the Messiah was to be, the mighty God, who is, which is a title distinctively for Jehovah, used by Isaiah the very next chapter, used by the other prophets, and used of no one else. So their mighty, almighty distinction is a nice slippery way to get out of it. But when you consistently read, it becomes clear that this is this is, this is identifying the coming Messiah as Jehovah God. That said, there are many other ways that you can start that conversation. That was, that, that was the way that I, I stumbled into it by God's grace that first time. Um, but now, the way that I normally go is I begin by turning to a psalm, a psalm of praise to Jehovah, and I will walk through the psalm with them as long as they're patient enough. If they're, if they're clearly getting antsy, I'll hurry, hurry along to the last section and get to, the, get to the point. But if they'll let me, I'll walk through the whole psalm with them so that we can affirm together the glory, the unique might and glory and attributes of Jehovah testified in this psalm and say, look, whatever else we're going to disagree on, we can at least agree that these things are true of Jehovah and are true of no one else. We, we can agree on that, that at least gives us something to build on before we go any further. 
And generally, most Jehovah's Witnesses, they're, they're, um, they're, they're often very kind people and will have this conversation with you. If, and so uh, I'll sit down and I'll turn to Psalm 102. And again, I'll, with them, I would go through the whole Psalm if they'll let me. I won't do, take up the, that much time on the show, but I'll, I'll hit a few highlights in the Psalm that are fun to note. And then we'll focus on the last section, which is the most important part to, if you're, if they're going to, if you feel, they feel kind of rushed and you feel like you've got to get to the point, the last section is the one you're going to want to hurry along to. But this is, these are some things that you'll want to hit. So the Psalm opens, hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. And their translation will say, O Jehovah. And, you know, the all cops and ours indicates the same thing. This is God by name, Yahweh, Jehovah, the one true God. So Psalm 102 is a prayer addressed to Jehovah. Um, Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Who's he calling on? Jehovah. We continue on. 102.12 says, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. This is is praise of Jehovah. It's Jehovah who is enthroned forever, who remains throughout all generations. Psalm 102.15, Nations will fear the name of the Lord of Jehovah, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. That's verse 15. And so then we get to the longer section. So those are some things that along the way, you'd see others too if you read through the psalm. There's a lot that's not perfectly relevant to the discussion, but you just walk through it if you can. Um, Or you can jump straight to 18 if you need to. Begin at 18 and go here. But I like to show, look, throughout the psalm without interruption, it is a prayer to Jehovah, praise to Jehovah, lauding things about Jehovah, attributes of his, his eternality, his might, um, uh, that in, it is a prayer to him. So then we get to verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, may praise Jehovah, that he looked down from his holy height from heaven. The Lord Jehovah looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord Jehovah and in Jerusalem his praise. When peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord Jehovah, we're not leaving the subject here. This is all about him. He has broken my strength uh, in, in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Who's his God whose years endure throughout all generations? We've already established in the earlier verse. This is Jehovah, and he's praying to him. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. And so at this point, I can say, look, we were both going to agree. This is a psalm of praise to Jehovah. 
And these are things we can say only of Jehovah God, only of the one true God. No one else could bear this praise. We couldn't pray this to any other being. And a Jehovah's Witness who's being honest and, and forward with you would have to say, yeah, of course. Of course we can agree on that much. Uh, there's going to be tons of stuff we disagree on, but yeah, okay, I'm, I'm with you there. I'm like, yeah, and see, but here's the thing. Here's where we disagree is, is, is really important here because we've agreed on this. Because you see, Hebrews in chapter 1 begins quoting from the Psalms about the Son. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And now he's going to quote from another psalm, words that might be familiar to you. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So what are we looking at here? The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 102 and says that psalm was written about the Son. Those words were spoken of the Son. Even identifies the Son as the Lord of Psalm 102. But we saw, we saw the Lord of Psalm 102 as Jehovah God, beginning to end. And those words you are forever and ever. Everything else wears out, but you remain. The whole refrain of the psalm over and over again is that that is Jehovah and no other. Nothing in creation can receive those words. It would be idolatry to say that about anyone or anything else. Yet these are the words that the author of Hebrews attributes from that psalm to Jesus while identifying Jesus as the Lord of that psalm. And this, the New World Translation, hasn't done anything to bury. And so from here, I can show them uh, that Psalm 102, a psalm of praise to Jehovah God, the New Testament identifies it as a psalm of praise to the Son, Jesus is Jehovah God. Now, be patient with them when you show them this. Their reactions may vary and sometimes may be somewhat hostile. There was one time my wife and I and a neighbor of ours were sitting down for a Bible study in a nearby restaurant and one of the workers there saw that we were having a Bible study and came up and injected themselves in it to hand us Jehovah's Witness literature and try to uh, persuade us of their message, which I appreciate it. I appreciate even on the job that you have the concern for my soul to come and talk to me about your faith. I, I was thankful for that. I, I, I welcomed, welcomed her to come up and, and have that conversation with me. It was no disruption to me at all. But I walked her through what I just walked you through, took her through the psalm, <coughs> and, then, and then showed her 
where the author of Hebrews identifies identifies this as uh, as being test words of praise to the Son, identifying the Son as Jehovah. And when I did that, she recoiled, screamed at me that I was a mouthpiece for the devil, that I was speaking the very words of Satan, and then she ran out of the restaurant on duty. And I wept for her. I'm not mad at her for reacting that way. I'm challenging the very core of what her entire identity is wrapped up in, everything that she believes. I get her emotional reaction. And I um, actually uh, pleaded for her to her employer for there to be no consequences for, for her reaction to us there. Um, but uh, the point is, their emotions are going to run high because you're striking a very central nerve. And you pull at that string, you can unravel the entire sweater of their beliefs. Don't respond in kind. Don't escalate when they escalate. Continue to show love and patience and mercy and bring them back to, look, this is what the Bible says. You believe the Bible's the word of God, right? They'll say yes. Bring them back there. Show them what it says and be patient when they're impatient. Be calm when they're heated. Don't be, be drawn up to a, to a level of hostility. Take time and trust the Holy Spirit to work, but it's worth it. And I found this particular approach to sometimes provoke that kind of reaction, probably because they're so startled by it, they have no script for it. Um, but, but it's not always that way. And I've had some that will respond with an objection. So they'll say, okay, um, but let me turn to this other passage that shows you that the Father is Jehovah. And this is where we get to explain the Trinity, because I believe the Father's Jehovah, and I believe the Son's Jehovah, and I believe the Spirit's Jehovah, and yet that they're all distinct persons. But for that, go back to episode one, and I'll walk you through. I walked, walked through all of that there, and I won't belabor that today. But the point being that it's ultimately their objection becomes an opportunity for us to clarify what they've misunderstood about what we believe, to bring them into that truth. All right, now that said, I'll give you one more example of a way to walk this out, and it's actually for a, from a verse that I don't recommend it being your starting verse. But for, for a lot of people, a lot of Christians I talk to, John 1, 1 is their favorite deity of Christ verse, and that's where they want to have the conversation. And so I'm going to show you, even though they're so scripted on it, they know that verse, they're prepared, they've got tons of arguments, and it's hard to get them to actually stop and think about what you're saying, because they're just responding with recited lines that they've memorized and practiced week after week. Because they practice, they prepare for the conversations they have with you. They spend hours in training and preparation for dialogue to know what to say, so that the analogies and comparisons and phrases and, and words that you hear one Jehovah's Witness say are almost exactly word for word what you're going to end up hearing another one say because they train for conversations. And so in John 1.1, it's hard to get them off script. 
But if you're insistent on going there, if that's you, that's the verse you've got memorized, you know it well, you love that verse. And if you're going to have the conversation, that's where you're going to go. I'm not going to stop you. So let's talk about then how you can have that conversation in a productive way with a Jehovah's Witness, even one who is trained for it. So first, I'm going to use their translation. You can use yours, but just understand that what I'm going to show you on the screen or what I'm going to read out loud if you're a podcasting is the wording that they're going to see in the Bible in their hand. And so quoting from the Jehovah's Witness Bible, which is called the New World Translation, uh, John 1, 1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Now, we could, you could go to the Greek, and even as a, lame, a layman who doesn't know much Greek, you can learn enough Greek to be able to show them in the original language why this translation can't be right. Um, it's the, the, the grammar behind why they make this mistake, but why this can't possibly be the right uh, translation of John 1.1 is actually not that hard to grasp once you get into it. But at the end of the day, they don't know Greek. Even if you do know some Greek, they're going to trust their organization over you. So going to the Greek isn't necessarily going to be in every situation the best way to go. Um, I'm not going to say never, but that's not the direction I would go with them. There are plenty of historical arguments you can also go to to show what this language would have meant and why a God is a terrible translation here. Again, with a Jehovah's Witness, probably not where I would go. Instead, I'll go ahead and say, okay, your translation says he's a God. So let's ask what sort of God he is or which God is he? Let's look at the rest of the passage and let it explain what John 1, 1 means. So he is a God. That means he's either Jehovah God or he's some kind of lesser God. Um, so he's one of those. Let's, let's take a look at, at what it says. So we'll go on. This one was in the beginning with God. So in the same sense that so in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God in the same sense that God was in the beginning. The word was in the beginning. The word is not something that had a beginning, but that already was in the beginning. In the beginning, God was there. In the beginning, the word was already there. And so we have already hints here of that the word is eternal. The word is beginningless like God is beginningless. The word is already there in the beginning. But we continue. Let's see if we can verify that. All things came into existence through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into existence. Now, here's where I'm going to say something really weird for me to say, especially after what I've said about the New World Translation uh, uh, so far. This is actually a pretty good translation of this verse. The New World Translation doesn't do a bad job at John 1.3. Let me read it again. All things came into existence through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into existence. That's pretty true to the original sense and original wording of this verse. So what does that mean? All things came into existence through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into existence. Is Jesus one thing? 
if he came into existence, he didn't come into existence through himself. He would be one thing that came into existence apart from him. Now, some Jehovah's Witnesses will try to key in, well, Jesus isn't a thing. You know, are you saying that John 1.3 is not talking about humans, not talking about angels, not talking about personal beings, that Jesus had nothing to do with those? Okay, no. Uh, most of them will concede. The moment you push back, they'll concede. Okay, no, it is talking about persons. That's included in things here. All created things. So they've changed John 1.1 to a God to try to mask this truth. But if you just keep reading the passage, there, if he's a God, there's only one God he could be. He's the eternal, uncreated God that brought all things into existence. Jehovah's Witnesses agree there's only one of those. They don't believe there's more than one of that, that definition of God, the strictest, truest, capital G definition of God. But that's all this could be talking about. But we don't even have to stop there. John 1.11, just read a little bit further. Again, reading in the New World Translation, which is not the best here, but it's good enough to make the point. He came to his own home, but his own people did not accept him. So, Jesus, when he came to earth, who did he come to? He came to the Jewish people. What, who can say that they are, that they are, so he, Jesus is a God. Is he the God of the Jewish people? Are they his own? What heavenly being can claim the Israelites as his own people? And can claim the, the land, the place where in the old covenant, God set, Jehovah God said, that's where my own name will dwell. So he came to his own home but his own people did not accept him. Which God are we talking about? Who is the God whose own people were the Jews, who Jesus came to and did not accept him? Which God is it? He's a God, which one? He's Jehovah. There is no other even lesser sort of God, that you, however you want to define that, who could make this claim. The uncreated creator whose people were the people of Israel whose land where he placed his name in the old covenant and said, that is where my name will dwell, who came there and was rejected by his own people. That can only be one God. That can only be the God. It's Yahweh. And so we see that when we go to John 1, 1, even in their translation, if Jesus is a God, everything else, that John, that John chapter 1 says about him, says about the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Everything that, that, that John chapter 1 says about that Word, that God, tells us that it is the God, the only God, Jehovah God. And so if you're going to go to John 1, 1, that's the direction I would go, is to not just go to 1, 1, and stay on that verse alone, but to walk through the chapter and ask the question, okay, if he's a God of some sort, what God is he? And in the end, even in their translation, you're going to have to come back to, there's only one God he could be. There's only one God he is. And so these are a few strategies. There are many others. 
Um, and they will have no shortage of other verses they'll want to run off to to challenge you back. We're out of time for today, but I look forward to a future episode where I can then show, show you how you might biblically respond to Jehovah's Witness objections to the deity of Christ. But when it comes to presenting our positive case that our Lord Jesus is the divine and eternal uncreated Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, these are some good places to start and some ways you might go about it. So pick the one you're most comfortable and confident with. Have your Bible ready and next chance you get, sit down and have a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness and share this truth. Be ready for some pushback. Be ready for some challenges. But Lord willing, be ready for God to use you. So hope this is helpful to you. You guys have a great week and we will see you next time. God bless.